Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Wherever you are joining us, and however that may be, you may have just done that on the FM machine, on digital, online, via the Triple R app, or you're sometime in the future listening to us on the podcast. I'm Panel Beater, and with me in the studio, Dr. Sharma and Dr. Dilemma. More on Dr. Dilemma in just a moment. Yes. But we also have our, uh, our, Apple Isle correspondent, uh, <laughs> Dr. Neo. Are you there, Dr. Neo, on Skype? I am. I, I consider myself the regional correspondent. <laughs> yeah, I'm just doing some research out in the field. <laughs> um, what's, what takes you to the Apple Isle? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm down in um, Tasmania, specifically Launceston today. Um, and uh, it was specifically for the, the great weather that we're having. Down I, here, uh, nice and warm and toasty. Uh, it's my, it's my uh, mandated annual leave, so I've been forced out of the hospital and out into the wild, and um, I'm actually off to Cradle Mountain to to go experience some brilliant, some Beautiful. snow and nature. Nice one, nice one, nice one. Um, Dr. Sharma, how are you? Uh, I am in pain. I uh, <laughs> ran and then did some car. We breaks. watched you limp in. Yeah, well, this is the problem with exercise. Yeah, so it's bad I'm, for your health. Yes, yeah, I've got to stop, and he I recommend, recommend everyone it. stop. Yes, uh, I mean it's geez, no, it's terrible. Like I was, I've been running, and you know, it's, it's a funny disconnect sometimes between the cardiovascular system, which is endlessly adaptive, and then you get down to the musculoskeletal tendon tissue, and that doesn't seem to adapt just as quickly. <laughs> so yeah, now my left calf is gone, and uh, for the next three months, I will be eating. Three months. Yes. What? Uh, who knows What's the prognosis? Take? Well, you know what? Honestly, I'm going to go see a health professional, and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to let them make the diagnosis. Uh, but you know, one of the things about uh, problems with tendons specifically is that they take a lot longer yeah. to yeah. heal than we think. So six weeks is a, is a rough guide for, for things that are muscular aches and sprains, but I'm hoping I haven't done anything to a yeah. tendon. That can take three months, if yeah. not longer. Oh, man. But fingers crossed. We'll see what What's the pain level like? Uh, it's okay when I'm just kind of sitting there. But if you can put it on a scale of zero being no pain, <laughs> ten being the worst pain. Oh my god! Where I've would really you turn into a patient? Oh my goodness! When I'm walking around, it's about a six. I'll say. Oh, but, ouch. Right. Sitting right. here in your company, oh my goodness! The pain is distant memory. Oh, pain. Good on you. Good on you. Good on you. Is uh, is just pure aging. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. There is that. There Refer is me that. to the geriatrics yeah. team. Yes. <laughs> Hey, um, uh, dear listeners, um, many of you may have just heard uh, a, a different voice uh, on the mic. You've been putting up with uh, three blokes here on this particular set of radiotherapy, myself, uh, Dr. Sharma and uh, Dr. Neo, but we are absolutely thrilled to the... Where do you get gills. thrilled to? The gills? Thrilled to the gills. <laughs> that seems right. <laughs> We're super thrilled to welcome uh, to our team, Dr. Dilemma. Dr. Dilemma, good morning. Good morning. Thank you, boys. Woo-hoo. Um, New member. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's I'm flattered. to not be here with the two old blokes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, complaining about their injuries and their backs. 
Yeah, yeah. We're welcoming you uh, this morning uh, for the first show as a formal member of Radiotherapy, and we are, as I say, totally thrilled. But listeners may have caught your voices and contributions. We've had you in on as a guest a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. And um, we need to know a little bit more about you. Now, you okay. when tell us again when was the Nobel Prize? Oh, uh, when was which one? Which one <laughs> no, certainly no Nobel Prizes. It's my name. I'm, where are I'm you? A, where are you at with things? I'm a very junior doctor. Um, <laughs> very junior doctor. Um, working in child health this year, which is awesome. Um, originally, I'm from the kind of Mornington Peninsula area, Flinders. Shout mm-hmm. out to Flinders for a beautiful part yeah, of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, then I came up to Melbourne to study arts um, and science at Monash Uni first, and then yeah, then did my medical degree, and and now loving um, working in paediatrics. Not sure which direction I like. <laughs> General paediatrics. I'm interested in refugee health. Um, yeah. Uh, my undergrad was in genetics, so I'm really interested in that side of things as well. So I don't really know where I'm going, but I'm thoroughly enjoying Excellent. the journey. Yeah. What a mix. What a mix. <laughs> when, you, when you did the art stuff... Could you tell I didn't know what I was doing? Um, <laughs> yeah. Had a lot of interests after high school and didn't know where to channel them, so I did a little bit of yeah, finger right. in every pie. <laughs> right, right, right. When did the penny drop for you to um, pursue medicine? Um, so I'm probably getting towards the pointy end of uh, the undergraduate study when I thought, mm. okay, I'm actually going to have to do something after this. Um, yeah. And I was enjoying um, the people side of the arts degree. I did media and communications mm. and thought maybe I'd work in a, I don't know, a... a uh, marketing or PR kind of communications role, um, but then I loved my science and genetics in particular. Um, and, um, did molecular biology as um, my major in that area, and I just love both. So I thought maybe I'd do something like genetic counselling or something that incorporates yeah. people, a bit yeah. of medicine, um, and yeah, then. Um, was very fortunate to get a spot you know, to study medicine um, close to home, well, in in Gippsland, um, and. Um, uh, yeah, took took that opportunity, and Good yeah, here I am. So yeah, very very lucky. Good on you. Good on very you. Very happy to be here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We'll get to know uh, Neo Sharma and myself, and the listeners will get to know much over the next few months and a long time to come. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks for welcoming me. It's really so. wonderful. Dr. Dilemma, and it's a great addition to the pseudonyms and the nom de plumes, Dr. Dilemma. Um, yeah, I'm a little bit jealous. It's a nod to my clumsiness. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, we've got a... Oh, just one other um, admin note. A big congratulations going out to the Megahertz for their victory over the Rock Dogs last Sunday of the Community Cup and the money raised down there for... Uh, Recklink, um, fantastic win. Um, as far as I took on the reports, there was maybe a fractured cheekbone. There were a couple of broken fingers. There was a dislocated shoulder. My goodness. But other than that, I think it went <laughs> relatively... Are we, are we relatively... calling it clumsiness or are we calling it uh, attacks against our presenters? Yeah, that's right. That's right. It was all vicious, I'm sure. <laughs> Um, big, full as a googie gig show uh, coming up. Working backwards, uh, the tail end of the show, uh, we're up to our fifth edition of Pop Goes Your Health. Um, this week we're looking at power posing <laughs> and uh, an issue that's got a couple of layers to it, um, as we like to have with the Pop Goes Your Health uh, segment. There is, of course, the science to it, this idea that if you make yourself expansive, um, physically expansive, then that will then translate into a positive mindset. 
Um, and, you know, and people are, and the proponents suggest you might do this before a job interview or um, uh, other situations where you need your, to build up your confidence. But I think uh, when we get to it, we'll uh, find out there's some other layers to what would otherwise might be a simple idea. Um, in the middle of the show, Dr. Sharma, telehealth back on our radar. That's right. Some big changes coming in play next week. Looking to curb perhaps the use of telehealth. And of course, that's going to be a dicey issue. Uh, patient advocates and uh, doctors groups are pushing against this. So we're going to get into this. Brilliant, brilliant. Looking forward to that. That's, that talk about layers to stories, telehealth, huh? So um, many different uh, stakeholders, so many different <laughs> yeah. And coming out of the last couple of years, all of that capers influencing ways people associate it, yeah. And Dr. Dilemma, you've uh, got uh, us in contact with a really interesting character. Yeah, I've got a fantastic guest I'm very excited for this morning. I've um, managed to secure a, a chat with uh, Dr. Kataiba, who's a um, consultant radiologist at, at Austin Health, who's working on a very exciting project Um which is bringing up robots and uh, robots into radiology. And we're very excited to hear a bit more about his, his work in, uh, in just a short while. So, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Looking forward to that so soon. That'll be just around the corner. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. This morning, I'm very pleased to introduce the wonderful Dr. Kataiba to the show. Uh, Dr. Kataiba was born in Iraq and studied his medical degree there before he came to Australia and went on to become a consultant radiologist at Austin Health here in Melbourne. Dr. Kataiba has a research interest in abdominal radiology and he's here this morning to talk to us uh, about his work in radiology as well as an exciting project he's currently involved in, which is using robotic technology to perform ultrasounds. Good morning, Dr. Kataiba. Um, welcome to Radiotherapy on Triple R. Good morning um, and thanks for having me. I hoped that you might be able to touch briefly on your on your course into radiology, which is perhaps one of the um, lesser trodden pathways after medical school. Um, can you tell a bit about what drew you towards a career in radiology? Uh, yes, yeah. So I started work as a junior doctor in Ballarat, and uh, uh, obviously that involves a rotation at, at the emergency department where we were relying heavily on uh, medical tests, particularly imaging. So I started thinking about the x-rays we do, the ultrasounds, the CT scans, and all of that. And after doing a few other clinical rotations in surgical and medical fields and gynecology and all of that, uh, I realized I was just more interested in that. And I was thinking that um, with radiology, it's uh, very heavily dependent on technology and it's evolving. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I... I got into a bit of research into it and then uh, started applying and got into the training program. Fantastic, yeah. Um, before we leap into discussing a bit of your, your current exciting research, could you help the listeners uh, and us brush up on our terminology and just remind us all of the difference between, so we've got radiologists, we've got radiographers and sonographers. Can you, can you clarify a bit of the terminology for us? Yes, uh, so, uh, it's, so radiology... Uh, it involves a, a team of uh, diff different uh, specialties and crafts, 
And um, as doctors, we get involved in the uh, reporting and interpretation of the imaging. But the imaging itself, whether it's an X-ray, CT scan, and also an MRI, is taken by a, uh, what we call a medical imaging technologist. And uh, radiographers uh, uh, form the bulk of this uh, craft group, and they're the ones responsible for taking the X-rays or uh, the CT scans or the MRIs. And uh, along radiographers are sonographers who are uh, responsible for uh, doing the ultrasound scans uh, that you have. Uh, The bulk of the ultrasound imaging is done by sonographers, uh, and uh, some ultrasound scans uh, uh, are done by doctors themselves. Usually these are point-of-care ultrasounds. That's usually in the setting of uh, emergency medicine, intensive care, anesthetics, uh, and those type of things. Uh, So it's a... It's a big field, and it's uh, being utilized more and more uh, with time. There's also the part of nuclear medicine, which is, uh, uh, and these these are also radiology studies or imaging studies, but they involve uh, nuclear medicine phys- physicians or radiologists who are trained or subspecialized in that. Hmm. Okay, well, thank you for clarifying some of those some of those important terms that I think are quite often misunderstood. Um, can you tell us where now how do robots fit fit into this? Where do robotic arms have their role? Can you tell us a bit about your current project with this? Yeah, so uh, this I mean, radiology in general is very heavily reliant on uh, technology, uh, but uh, still requires a fair bit of. Uh, patient interaction and, and, and handling and uh, getting the patients into the machines or getting the machines close to the patients and doing the scan. Now, with ultrasound imaging, uh, normally uh, a sonographer uh, gets the ultrasound probe or transducer, which uh, close to the uh, surface of uh, the body of a patient, and uh, the machine emits ultrasound waves, and uh, then these are... Uh, reflected back into the probe or the transducer, and that creates an image on the machine, and then we acquire the images. Um, so the uh, the sonographers handle the probe in different directions. They hold it in different ways. They uh, move it along the body. So it's a, all of it. It's a very dynamic process that requires a lot of uh, interaction and maneuvering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this interaction and maneuvering uh, is sort of built into our uh, brains through uh, millions of years. Because if you think about handling any tools or even handwriting, you don't think about your shoulder movement when you're uh, handwriting or even if you're typing on a keyboard. Uh, Because it's all very intuitive. You're moving your fingers and uh, the small joints in your hands and wrists, uh, and you're not thinking so much about your shoulder and elbow. Uh, So we were thinking along the uh, lines of, can we uh, replace that movement uh, by a robotic arm? So the robotic arm acts the same way as a human arm, and the uh, ultrasound transducer or, or probe is attached to the end of that arm, and then uh, the arm moves uh, close to the patient and scans the patient by uh, putting the transducer along the skin surface uh, of the body. Uh, well, so Dr. Katabi, you've, you've explained very elegantly why humans are so good at moving our arms around and you know, shoving the transducer exactly where we need to to get a good reading. Why then do we need robots to do this? Why not humans? 
Yeah, well, uh, they, uh, uh, there are several reasons. I mean, the most uh, pressing reason recently uh, is the pandemic. So if you think about uh, needing to do an ultrasound scan on a patient who is COVID positive, and uh, you don't want to risk the sonographer uh, who is who's doing the scan or the intensive care doctor who's doing the scan by getting close to the patient, you can have that robotic arm uh, close to the patient, uh, the doctor or the sonographer uh, away in ICU, in a different part of the building of the hospital, or even in a different continent, uh, scanning the patient remotely uh, and acquiring the same images uh, that you would require that you would acquire by scanning the patient by standing next to them. So that's one uh, good reason is to avoid the proximity that creates problems in infection uh, infectious diseases. One other thing to think about in a, uh, obviously a country like Australia is uh, the rural and regional setting. So if you can't have a sonographer uh, somewhere um, uh, hundreds or thousands of miles away, you can have that robotic arm, you can have the machine, uh, which is the robotic arm and, and uh, the ultrasound probe, and have the patient close to it and have someone else as well, not necessarily a sonographer, maybe a nurse or a healthcare professional, uh, someone to make sure that everything is set up well. And you have a sonographer or a doctor scanning remotely. So that remote as aspect to it is, is good. And that also applies to teaching of uh, sonography students. So we have several courses for uh, ultrasound training and you know, may not have the skills or the expertise all in uh, the different sites uh, in, uh, throughout Australia. You may have them condensed in the, in the cities. Um, so, so these are all aspects to consider. And, and one last aspect that, uh, that's actually quite important for sonographers is that, uh, and it's also relevant to many people uh, uh, with different types uh, of uh, repetitive uh, work, is that many of the sonographers experience what we call repetitive stress injuries, so to the shoulders and elbows and all that. And that's because they have to hold the probes in certain ways all day long for their entire career. So if you actually reduce that movement of the shoulder and the elbows and the wrist uh, by controlling something easier uh, that does that movement, then you're potentially prolonging the career and make it, uh, of the sonographers and preventing them from uh, having these injuries. Dr. Katawa, it's Dr. Neo here. It's, it's such an incredible um, idea that you've come up with. It <laughs> brings to mind... Um, Particularly in the world of pediatrics, we like to use ultrasound uh, a bit because it has no radiation effect and has no long-term impact for things like cancer in our patients who can get quite a large radiation dose because they're quite small um, with the standard methods of X-ray or CT scan. I guess the problem with it is that often it's a nine-to-five um routine with, with ultrasound, you know, you need the ultrasonographer in the building to actually do it. Have you considered the application of doing out-of-hours scans, say, through, through ultrasonographers being at home or being overseas and, and where it's a bit of a nicer hour um, so that these scans can be, become more readily available? Yes, yeah, so that's certainly one aspect of it. It's, it's, uh, it's almost like a, a, a perceived... Uh, uh, sort of a dream of the radiologist reporting from a remote island enjoying a holiday <laughs> uh, after hours or something like that. But it is, it is actually happening. So teleradiology, which is in which uh, radiologists report imaging acquired 
anywhere in in Australia uh, out of hours is happening all the time. We have it in, in the hospitals, uh, in one of the hospitals where I work in Box Hill and several other hospitals throughout Australia where you have radiologists sitting, uh, for example, in the UK or Canada, and what is considered uh, out of hours here in Australia would be normal hours, work hours for them. They're sitting in a, a normal office and reporting that uh, these scans, usually these are CT scans in emergency departments after hours. But for ultrasound, that applies uh, as well because instead of having uh, the sonographer to come in, having to, to come into the hospital uh, uh, or a doctor who's experienced in, in doing the ultrasound, coming to the hospital to perform that one scan after hours, uh, they can actually do that remotely. And if you think about it and you take it away from the actual sonographers in the same time zone uh, of that hospital, i.e. Uh, get a sonographer in Perth, for example, or a sonographer in New Zealand or a sonographer sitting in the UK to do that, uh, that takes away that aspect of it. There are, of course, just like with the teleradiology for CT scans here, uh, legislation and registration issues. So you have to have a, a credential sonographer who could do this, registered to the hospital uh, and known to the hospital and fix all the boxes to perform these scans. Now, the, the other aspect of this, uh, which we haven't actually entertained in uh, our project yet, uh, you're talking about uh, children. So not only uh, we always have someone next to the uh, patient uh, with the robot, uh, but uh, with children, it's all about the aspects of how they would perceive a robotic arm moving around their body, uh, what uh, they think uh, it's uh, doing, the safety aspects of it, the reassurances. In the current project we're doing, there is almost a, there's a button held by uh, the patient uh, on, on either side, like right or left, left hand, and if the patient is experiencing any discomfort, uh, physical or even psychological, that uh, they're not they're not happy uh, uh, with the scanning, uh, potentially from the pressure of the probe or anything like that. They press that, and the robotic arm retracts immediately uh, upwards and then moves away completely from. Uh, the bed or the trolley where the patient is. So we're not known to be dealing with uh, the Space Odyssey hull refusing <laughs> to, to do something or, or Skynet from Terminator <laughs> to, to taking over. Uh, so there are lots of safety mechanisms. And you can imagine the ethics and the approvals that we have to, uh, <laughs> submission that we have to go through to, you know, in order to start the project here uh, at the Austin. You're on uh, Triple R Radiotherapy. It's myself, Panel Beta. In the studio is Dr. Sharma and Dr. Dilemma. And on Skype down uh, in Tassie is Dr. Neo. We're talking with radiologist uh, Dr. Kataiba about robotics and some of the advancing that's going on in that regard. Um, when listening to you there, I guess uh, some of our listeners might um, be thinking the, the technology here is fantastic and, and the initiative sounds great and all of that. But would the, is, should, the, should patients be concerned at all about any shifting quality at this stage of the development of the technology? Is the quality um, as, as good as you wanted? Or are there still some challenges? Yeah, so there are definitely some challenges. That's an excellent question because that's exactly what we're uh, assessing uh, now as a first step. So what we're trying to do is, is now uh, we're in the uh, scanning volunteers uh, part of it is get a volunteer uh, to come in. Uh, they have a point-of-care ultrasound focused uh, 
on the liver, for example, and the kidneys uh, in, with a normal scan by a sonographer doing the normal uh, sonography ultrasound scan that, that you'd have uh, uh, in, in a routine setting. And then we move them into uh, the area where the robotic arm is uh, and use the robotic arm and the ultrasound uh, machine there with the same sonographer controlling the robotic arm with a joystick and uh, take some images. And we're comparing the quality of the images uh, that we're taking with the normal scan versus the quality of the images with the uh, robotic arm. And we have to bear in mind that what we're doing is actually not compromising the quality of the scan. We're just trying to replace the movement of the uh, human arm uh, by, of the sonographer uh, by a robotic arm. And that had uh, quite a bit of uh, challenges in terms of training the sonographer to use a joystick that's held like a pen uh, uh, to control that arm because intuitively uh, you hold the ultrasound probe and uh, as I said, you don't think too much about your shoulder or elbow when you're doing uh, a maneuver. Mm -hmm. Same way, you don't think too much about your shoulder or elbow when you're holding the steering wheel of a car. Um, so that took a, bit, a fair bit of training. But the quality, uh, that's the most important thing. We're uh, not compromising that. So uh, part of the quality assessment will be presenting the images to uh, other radiologists uh, who are hopefully not listening now, so uh, who are not, not not aware of this project. We've got a huge and radiology my, audience. Yes, yes. And, and my intention is actually to tell them that these are two different uh, machines that we want to compare ultrasound images uh -huh. for. I'm not going to tell them that they're robotic uh, arm versus, versus a normal scan and just rate it on a quality score from uh, one to five and, yeah. and go with that. Just before we lose you, because we are um, fastly running out of time, um, the Luddites, famously at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, took issue with some of the advancements in machinery around textiles and were kind of reacting to the likelihood, and in fact, as it turned out, um, losing their jobs. Do you anticipate any pushback from practitioners on this? No, not, not at all. Not at all. This will be reserved for a very specific setting that I mentioned and, and will be mainly used, for example, in, in pandemic setting with infections, um, we have to remind our listeners that uh, 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 viral illnesses and pandemics are still a thing uh, of presence and also of the future. Uh, so, uh, uh, so these kind of things will be helpful uh, in the future as well. Um, training people to use this, these uh, robotic arms to do things like this will require them to be trained in ultrasound and other aspects of healthcare as well. So we, we don't anticipate this replacing uh, anyone. And uh, different craft groups react to machineries in different ways, and they adapt. Even radiologists are adapting to the introduction of artificial intelligence and things like that uh, slowly. So I, I don't, I don't anticipate that any time soon. Dr. Kataba, that was a fantastic conversation. we yeah, so many, so many potential. Incredible uses for this technology. Um, I'm thinking not only for t teaching teaching sonography students and you know preventing um, um, clinicians needing to go into infectious rooms and um, potential for you know having a having a scan done in a regional setting that might uh, for a patient who might not otherwise have had access to a scan. It's just it's incredibly exciting. We're we're, we're very pri privileged to have you on the show this morning. Thank you so much for your time, and we look forward to following uh, your research very closely in the future.
No, th thanks a lot for having me, and we'll definitely uh, keep everyone up updated with uh, with our results, and hopefully goes into clinical implementation for uh, betterment of patients. Fantastic! Thank you so much, Dr. Kataiba. Thank you so much. Bye. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Just before we go to talk about uh, some telehealth, uh, we have had somebody help us out on text line already, picking up on my stumble around the appropriate idiom for welcoming uh, Dr. Dilemma, where I said, thrilled to the dot, 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 uh, the ellipsis. We've had uh, somebody say, it's thrilled to the back teeth. Of course it is. <laughs> is it? Yeah. I don't know what that means. What do you mean? That's news to you, is it? Yeah, I don't know how to make any sense of it. Yeah, it is news to me. I haven't heard that one before. What did you say? I'm thrilled to the gills. to the gills. It seems to rhyme. Thrill, gill, yeah, okay. Um, anyway, thanks to uh, thanks for that uh, astute listener with thrilled to the back teeth. And we are, Emma. A dilemma. Dilemma. Dr. Dilemma. Thrilled to the back teeth. Thrilled to the yeah. back teeth, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Dr. Sharma, telehealth um, is uh, taking some interesting is, twists and turns in the, in the conversation. The landscape is changing yet again. Some big changes coming in the next week. Many Medicare rebates for telehealth are being abolished. The big one is that there will be no Medicare rebate for phone consultations of more than 20 minutes with a GP. As well as that, if any GP provides more than 30 uh, telephone consultations in a day on 20 or more days in a year, they'll you know, effectively be audited and to, you know, to basically to see if they're doing too much telehealth because apparently that is a thing. And uh, these changes are set to come into play on July the 1st. Now, the Royal College of Australian uh, GPs is saying that these changes undermine the whole idea of telehealth, which they say is a critical enabler. The AMA is saying it's going to make access to medical care more difficult, particularly for vulnerable populations. And we will go into a wider chat about what this means for telehealth. But again, I want to remind you that if you have any thoughts, ideas, concerns, questions about telehealth, do text us in on 0466 98 10 27, 0466 98 10 27. And I also want to spell out what this rebates for phone consults means. I know we all just kind of assume we all know what it is, but not necessarily. So to really you know, bring it back to basics, at the moment, if you have a telephone consultation over the phone with your GP that lasts anywhere from 6 to 20 minutes, the Medicare rebate that the government gives you as the patient is 39 bucks, right? That's what Medicare pays you as the patient, and that then gets passed on to the, to the clinic, you know, kind of on your behalf. That's for consultation 6 to 20 minutes. But if there's a consultation greater than 20 minutes, then that rebate is much bigger. It jumps to you know, about 75 bucks, which is just under double of what it would be. So it's, it's a huge uh, financial jump, really, to go from under 20 to over 20 minutes, which makes sense because you know, 20 minutes of a telehealth consultation, that, that can, includes consultations at up to 35 minutes too. Um, this is really make-or-break stuff mm -hmm. for, for general practitioners. Uh, and so it raises the question, why is it that the government or the previous government who put this ruling in place, why are they taking this rebate away for consultations over 20 minutes? And also auditing doctors who are maybe doing, quote-unquote, too much telehealth. And, you know, we, we can kind of pass this out, but, you know, the most cynical interpretation would be, of course, that, 
they don't want to spend too much money on this telehealth stuff. Um, but you know, the more generous interpretation would be is that maybe they want to encourage people away from telehealth, which is what we've been doing so much over the last couple of years, back towards face-to-face consultations, which I think is it's going, it's a big ask because I don't know about you guys, but I've, I've had a few telehealth consultations even as a patient, yeah. me being the patient. Um, there's about 99% of general practices have offered and performed telehealth consultations, and they make up 25% of all Medicare like, services that have been performed by GPs mm. in the last two and a half years. Mm. So I feel like you know, there's been a huge flavour that everyone's gotten for telehealth. Now the government's started to kind of pare back the support for this. You know, which direction is it really going to go in? And you know, the bigger question being, is this the right or the wrong move? Yeah. It, go on, Dr. Neo. It's certainly an interesting idea, and... I, like, I personally have used um, telehealth for a GP consult and it was very convenient and um, it definitely, I definitely, definitely think it has its place and I don't agree with the pairing back of the, the rebates. But I have to say that face-to-face has its benefits. Like, I don't think that it's entirely obvious unless you compared telehealth and face-to-face sometimes in the same day. But if you do consults, like, for example, I don't necessarily want to deliver bad news to a patient via telehealth. I think I'd much rather have them in the room in an appropriate setting where it can be done in a sensitive way. And there's just something so powerful about having that patient in the room and that connection that you can have. And I find that telehealth is almost a bit artificial. Like, you don't really make as good a connection with the people that you're talking to over the phone. And, you know, sometimes you get a little bit of a better one if you can do, do it, set up a video platform. But it's just it's just not the same in my books. Can I'm not I put sure you if, on the... Um, you know, um, Dr. Dilemma or um, Dr. Sharma, if you've experienced the same. Well, so interestingly enough, yeah, if you actually ask a lot of GPs and patients um, who've done telehealth, the survey shows that overall the satisfaction is pretty similar to what people would expect in face-to-face. Now, that's not to say that that's the experience of everyone. That's just to say that's kind of how things are averaging out in these surveys. And I I take your point that even for something that's purely conversational, which is uh, delivering bad news, a great example by you, actually, that even that's something that's very likely to be done better in face-to-face. To that, I guess I'd just bring up the, the counterpoint that, you know, optimizing the quality of the consultation, that's just one variable. The other variables are things like access. You know, they're coming to an appointment. Look, I'm, I'm someone who really struggles to, to go and do things in person, you know, generally speaking. You know, finding an appointment, going, driving, parking, etc. That's hard enough in an urban area, but in places that are you know, out of metro or potentially even rural. Um, uh, you know, or people who don't have a car or people who need someone to physically take them there. So uh, while I can take the point about potentially the quality of the consultation and, you know, telehealth maybe not being as good as face-to-face for some things, that it's just one of the variables. The, the other thing that I would say is that uh, for every uh, example like delivering bad news or needing to do a physical examination where face-to-face is better... There are things where telehealth, I would argue, uh, is just as good. So surely what we need to do is think about uh, offering these Medicare rebates or how we support uh, telehealth in a way that is very nuanced, looking at the individual types of services that are being provided. Yes, we'll provide a rebate for this. No, we won't for this. Um, I think that's kind of the way to go about these things. Absolutely. Uh, I just don't... I, I hope that it doesn't get to the point, though, that 
you know, face to face becomes the um, like reserved for very special situations where it's, for example, delivering bad news, or we need to do a very thorough physical exam to to make sure that this patient is okay, simply because uh, I don't really want the doctor's office to be a bad place. Like necessarily, it's um, like you know you you're going, walking into the the GP clinic because something is terribly wrong and you need to be um, have that extra special care and it's, it becomes a bit of a terrible place to be you know mm. I, I think that that's um, that I'm, I'm not saying that it will go to that that extent but I just hope that it doesn't I I agree with um, what you're saying dr. Neo that there needs to, I, th- I think there needs to be a real support for both. There's certainly yeah. a place for telehealth moving forward and it needs to be supported to be continue to be able to be used um, where it's appropriate. But we also absolutely need to still be welcoming uh, uh, face-to-face appointments um, where that's the patient's preference or where it's the, f- the physician's preference. Um, I remember back when everyone got into their... Uh, cycling around their 5Ks in the, in the lockdown of 2020, um, my partner got into the cycling phase and... Um, uh, had a bicycle crash and um, fortunately only did some minor damage. He uh, had some had some finger injuries and uh, he att- he needed to attend um, uh, finger physiotherapy appointments through. through <laughs> he had them through the Alfred Hospital and at that point we were living um, down on the peninsula, um, um, so quite some distance from from the Alfred and uh, he was. Um, having his uh, set up his uh, finger th- physiotherapy appointments in the kitchen uh, at home um, and was doing his little workouts. And um, uh, shout out to the uh, Alfred Health um, so, finger physiotherapy. So how did he find it? Like, fantastic. Like right. It would have been a, a three-hour round trip if he had gone in to, to have that, mm. you know, 20, 25-minute appointment in person. So certainly a great... Um, I, I, there's certainly a place for it. And no one, I think no one is doubting that. But I agree there's a lot of... Um, places where it's not so appropriate. And one that really springs to mind from um, a bit of my experience, um, I don't do a lot of telehealth um, uh, in, my, in my practice t- to date, but um, mental health consultations um, I think are really important to, to be able to do face-to-face. At times, um, I think about appointments where you need... So really telehealth relies on, on, the, on the patient having a private and, and quiet space mm. in a home mm that they can speak Absolutely. freely about their, their, their concerns and worries, which is a privilege that most of us can't say that we have, you know, who lives in a house where you don't have kids interrupting or your housemates listening in or your, um, you know, all those factors. Yeah. Um, it's not a space. Yeah. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Thank you, everyone, for texting in your thoughts uh, on telehealth. Uh, I'm going to read a few of these out. Jane from Montmorency saying, Surely telehealth saves the government a lot of money when infections aren't passed on by sitting in a waiting room for an hour with bugs hanging around. And she says, as a parent of a child with special needs who can't socially distance, telehealth makes a huge difference to my care, uh, to my caring burnout as well. This is such a great, great point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, we've had um, Elsie say, for clinically vulnerable families during the pandemic, telehealth has been a huge benefit. Uh, by the way, my GP has always been scrupulous with mask wearing and using HEPA filters. But out in the waiting room, many people are unmasked, even okay, even some of the receptionists, as she's saying. So you know, great points there. Infection control is a point that's coming up uh, again and again. 
Um, we've had uh, a Dr. Andy, who is a, uh, a emergency uh, physician, say that uh, the standards of care uh, and the requirements for physical examination, uh, you know, that if that's the standard, then you you must do it. And it's a big risk for practitioners to to not do it. So, talking about things from that medical legal mm. side uh, as well. And um, we've also had uh, Chris, um, uh, who's making the point of um, uh, that my, my wife, Alison, is having an apoplexy back here. Uh, what if you're a working mum with four kids? What if you're blind? What if I just need test results and don't want to waste two hours to be told uh, it's all fine? Um, and I, I get that point. I'm actually very sympathetic with, with this, which is that the investment of time in an appointment extends far beyond yeah. the time the you time actually have with me as yeah. a doctor. It's enormous. Mm. And it's an enormous barrier we're removing. So for, for every you know, point that Dr. Andy is making about, um, you, you know, the, the requirements of that medical consultation from a medical viewpoint, like I was saying, this is just one variable. Just on that, um, uh, I don't want to waste two hours to be told it's fine. Over time, though, wouldn't something start to emerge where if the doctor calls you in, you know it's going to be bad news, otherwise they're going to tell you on the yep. phone? This is actually quite a sophisticated uh, uh, thought, actually, because, you know, you, to what extent can you triage things straight into telehealth mm. versus not before you actually know what the problem is? Okay. I mean, you know, I, I'm saying this as someone who's a big advocate of, of telehealth. I kind of have to check myself because so many times it'll be three quarters of the way through a consultation and you'll revisit just this one part of the history and, and it'll be like, oh, yes, that's true, but also X, Y, Z. And suddenly the entire consultation has just kind of turned right. on its head here. Yeah. Um, now, in theory, you could say, well, then I guess we'll just make that into a face-to-face appointment. But, you, you know, there's, there's a loss of kind of some sort of efficiency there. And I think it, it's going to be a messy issue. And I don't know what's actually going to resolve it. In hospital um, telehealth um, appointments, they're often triaged by the clinicians and... Um, Clinicians decide, you know, that can be a telehealth appointment. This one needs to be a face-to-face, mm. which um, works usually generally reasonably well. Um, but I suppose in a thing like a primary care GP practice, you're really relying on the patient um, uh, mm. who probably doesn't need – they don't specify why they're coming into the appointment. So you're still relying on their self-report of whether or not they need to come in versus um, mm. telehealth. And that's, um, that's a, a factor in, um, in, I suppose, avoiding the – the, the double up or the duplication and the loss of uh, efficiency if, if you end up needing to, after a telehealth appointment, go, well, well now we need to we need to proceed with a face-to-face appointment and book in again. And then um, comes all the factors about the, uh, um, the variables that, uh, you know, coming back in for the appointment. As you say, it's not the five minutes, it's the, it's the round trip, it's the organising care for the kids, it's taking the time off work, it's um, all those factors. So... I think what we, we're coming to is that uh, both are very necessary and both will need to be used throughout the future. Sure. And we don't necessarily agree with the fact that the um, the Medicare rebates are being taken away um, for such a, a vital uh, resource that has been used um, and used very well throughout the pandemic. Well, Dr. Neo, it's you know, timely you brought up that Medicare rebate because this is a question I guess I'm opening up to, to you guys. It's a bit of a... Uh, thought experiment that's going to become a real experiment soon, the government is now taking away rebates for these longer consultations. Mm. Are there going to be people who say, I don't care about the rebate, 
I'm going to pay for it privately anyway. Has there been such a flavour developed amongst the community that the people who kind of have the money are going to say, yeah, I don't care, I'll pay 150 bucks out of pocket, 100, you know, 100 bucks out of pocket, whatever, to get that longer consultation. Um, do, do we think that, you know, uh, there, there is uh, enough of a you know, market for that, so to speak? Um, or do you think people are just going to still kind of go back to their GPs and get the face-to-face for the longer appointments? It's tough to know, isn't it? Yeah, I, I reckon there's a real... That's kind of stratifying it into a bit of a lower socioeconomic versus higher socioeconomic, <laughs> which is just you know, increasing barriers to healthcare access and um, is entirely what we want to avoid with the public healthcare system. Oh, if, if, and with telehealth itself. Spot on. And, and it's only going to be those people with the money who are going to be able to... Um, uh, to, to spend the kind of money to do that, unfortunately. Look, I'm um, speaking of barriers. I know this is something we wanted to, to bring up uh, at the top of the show, but uh, barriers don't get bigger than the ones that have just been erected in the United States uh, overnight with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, that landmark decision in 1973 that protected the right of abortion uh, under, the, uh, under the US Constitution. Uh, it has now been uh, overturned which means that in several states in the United States, they've already had trigger bans in place that have become activated straight away or very soon, making uh, abortions well, illegal and, and banned in those places. And the, the thing that fascinates me is, again, that word you used, barrier, uh, there, uh, Dr. Neo, not just a, a barrier for, for women to access this very essential uh, service that many would argue is a, is a basic human right, but also just the barriers you know, kind of between states. This is a country that's already divided. It's now becoming even more divided uh, again you know, along state lines. Well, what were your reactions to all these guys? I, th- I think um, with, with my radiotherapy hat on and thinking about it, um, it was, you know, why is this being treated singularly by some quarters as a medical issue? Why is it being treated some quarters as a religious issue? Why is it uh, a political um uh, football um, as well, and I think that in, and that uh, points to the division that you're you're um, talking about, Dr. Sharma. That people are their starting point is so different that they're not even talking to each other in the same conversation. Um, but it, it's it's a worry because we we know with so many of these um, uh, social uh, uh, moments that where the United States sneezes, Australia catches cold. And uh, I kind of get nervous uh, a little um, about how that might translate and transpose. I think ultimately Australia's um, significantly different enough and there are different types of things um, about Australian society that may mean we won't um, be faced with that kind of ugly debate that they are faced with. Um, for example, we don't have the religiosity mm. that the United States has, mm. for example. Mm. So that might uh, be a bit of a safety net. What do you reckon, Dr. Dilemma? Oh, gosh, I really hope you're, I hope you're correct in saying that. It's been a, a very dark day. Um, mm. I, uh, um, topic of conversation yeah. for me and my um, group of girlfriends, just devastated for the women of America, and I think it's a real step backwards, and I can't... I'm, I mean, I'm in shock still. I, I think it's interesting you brought up, uh, Panel B, to the point about you know, these things potentially not happening here because of the system we have. And I think one of the things that's very protective is our compulsory voting. Interestingly, in America, uh, you know, this this decision by the Supreme Court doesn't actually make abortion illegal. It's the states that do. And, hey, half the states who've got these trigger bans, they've got an election coming up in November 8th. So in theory, Mm. in theory... 
people could you know vote on this and uh, and uh, legalize abortion again, and yet we know that's not going to happen because again, how divided that country is. Non compulsory voting, the most extreme views tend to get a voice. Going to need to wrap it there, guys, uh, for radiotherapy this Sunday. Time has flown. We will park um, Pop Goes Your Health for another time, um, but we've got to thank our guest, uh, Dr. Kataiba, radiologist, talking to us about robotic arms and radiology. Um, big, uh, f- don't f- don't forget, folks. We're on the socials, on the Facebook, the Twitter, and all the rest of it. You can catch us later on on podcasts. Big thank you to Dr. Sharma, Dr. Neo, and a special wa- warm welcome and big thanks to you, Dr. Dilemma, for uh, your first show officially here with us on Radiotherapy. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.